can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction. Welcome to the fifth Football Insiders podcast, a podcast home for Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. In case you missed the previous episodes with Trevor Thompson, Jason Goldsmith, Andrew Howe and Texie Smith, you can have a listen via our website at fairplaypublishing.com.au or find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iTunes or Spotify. Today's guest is an archivist and researcher by profession who has worked with some of our wonderful national institutions in Canberra, such as the National Film and Sound Archive and the National Library. But like many of us who would be listening to this podcast and who have written books with Fair Play Publishing, he's also um, a football aficionado. He's a former amateur player, a referee, and a former correspondent for Soccer World. Along with Trevor Thompson and Andrew Howe and people such as Ian Sison and Joe Gorman and Roy Hay, he is one of a select band of people who have worked really hard to chronicle some of the, our history over not just the past 50, 60, 70, but 150 or so years. Peter's book, Chronicles of Soccer in Australia, the foundation years 1859 to 1949, is really quite something to behold and to read through. And if ever you want to prep for a, a a trivia contest that's basically based only on Australian football, it's a good one to start. So welcome, Peter. Thank you, Benita. First things first, how are you dealing with social isolation? Where at the time of recording this, we're still in that phase. We may be out of it soon, but at the time of recording, we're still in it. You know, what I really miss is just going past cafes and seeing people sitting there drinking coffee. It might seem a small thing, but somehow vibrant elements in a community like that are now missing, and I really miss that, but otherwise fine. Yeah, and I should have said to everybody who's sitting here listening to this, grab yourself a cup of coffee before we get underway <laughs> because we can just pretend we're in a cafe having one. As someone who likes to research and has put into exquisite detail in your book, what are you yourself reading? Uh, one thing I was brushing up on recently was the Matthew Hall book. If I started to cry, I wouldn't stop. That's an extremely interesting read. It's an easy-to-read book. It's written in an entertaining way. And a lot of the interviews are with the golden generation people. And funnily enough, it just made me think that even that generation, uh, we have to go back, what is it, 10, 12 years now. That's that's quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, the World Cup of 2006 was 14 years ago. So when you think about when that golden generation was learning to play their football, we're, we're getting on for 25 years ago. That's right. And, you know, in terms of the current debate in Australian football now about player development and those sorts of things, I would have thought that the golden generation were a good generation to learn from. They certainly are. But uh, if you like, they had the advantage of growing up in a period when there wasn't the internet. Young kids didn't play on computers. And I think that was a massive plus in their day as it was in our day. And I think people underestimate that because I think, I think if you like, the pool sometimes of young people who are obsessed with the game to the exclusion of other activities, is diminishing in many countries. Yeah, I think that's so. And it's also there's a cost issue there as well, particularly in this country, to play our game. I think that has a big bearing on things. So you're reading Matthew Hall's book, which, as you said, has got a whole series of short stories. Anything else outside of football? Well, one thing I'm not reading, but one thing I've just been looking at, I've just managed to get Netflix in the last few weeks, 
and I've been what I haven't finished it yet, but I've been watching this documentary show called Sunderland Till I Die, which is about how the Sunderland Football Club in England descended from the Premier League to the Championship and the problems they had arising from that. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I've heard a lot of very good feedback on that. I haven't yet watched it myself, so it's on my list of things to do. Let's turn to your book, and for those, again, the title is is long, but there's a reason for it, Chronicles of Soccer in Australia, The Foundation Years, 1859 to 1949. It was published in September last year. What made you decide to write it? Oh, I think it's a number of reasons. I mean, one was, I suppose it goes back even to my childhood where you or your family might have experienced this as well because my, my family was a part migrant family and I remember playing in the schoolyard and the kids would steal your ball and say you're playing log ball and you have to fight to get it back and all that sort of thing. Now, I'm not saying that's a trauma I haven't got gotten over, but from then on, I think was, what, what was cemented in my mind was that one day I'd really like to write something that puts something like the early history of soccer in its place and proves to people it's had a history here and it has a legitimate history within sporting law in Australia. So you're saying even as a five-year-old in Mossman, you <laughs> you thought about that? Oh, oh no, no, no. I mean, obviously, no, obviously I'm sort of extrapolating to a silly degree with that. But, I mean, I'm saying, I guess looking back, I mean, even as like a third, I mean, these things were happening when I was a 13-year-old in Canberra at school as well, you know, so not just, I wasn't five-year-old, but that sort of thing still happened. Now, it doesn't happen now, I know that, but... We all know about, if you like, the various different forms of discrimination against the game in Australia, and that itself would be a subject in itself. Not a lot had been written about the early history of soccer in Australia, number one. I mean, Ian's book came out a little while before mine, but not a lot had been written in, a, I guess, a more comprehensive form. Of course, there have been the great, if you like, uh, state books written by uh, Philip Mosley about New South Wales, Mr Crider in Western Australia and, and Tony Smith in South Australia and so on. But an overarching book, not so much. Although, of course, I'm aware of the Roy Hay book as well and the Bill Murray book. What I wanted to do when I wrote my book was to make it entertaining as well as interesting. So it would have content, but it would be also entertaining and perhaps even a little bit entertaining for someone who wasn't, you know, a rabid soccer fan. Yeah, and the way you've done that, of course, is to intersperse the narrative with a whole range of newspaper clippings and minutes of meetings from the time, as as well as some fantastic photos which were unearthed. How did you actually start on that whole process of doing it? Because, you know, a book like this doesn't take a year or two to write. It takes several years. When did you start and how did you start? I started, Benita, when I was still in full-time work. So I ceased full-time work in the National Film and Sound Archive in 2011. So I think I must have started about 2008. So obviously when I was working full-time, the amount of time I could devote to it was probably a little bit less. And then after I retired, I started to devote a little bit more time to it. So it's been a work over a number of, quite a number of years, partly due to the fact that I was working full-time, I guess. A number of astounding things in there, but two that really struck me as I read it through, and and, and like you, I've probably read it more than most people, <laughs> having read it through a number of times. But one particular theme is how the media treated the game. And it's so obvious that that doesn't change that much over all these years. What did you find about that? Look, I think as a sport, we've always had this issue in Australia. I'm a bit of a car fan. I tend to think that football in Australia is a bit like a car that's got a wonky chassis. You can buy it used and cheap, but it'll never run right unless you fix the fundamentals. And, you know, I don't think the average person's ever got it. And I'm talk- not talking about a soccer person. The average community in Australia has never understood that, you know, for, for example, football is the English national sport in winter. 
it, it, it's got its legitimate place in, in England or Britain, not just on the continent or not just in, in South America or everywhere else. So um, the, the average Australian so-called sports fan, I just think, has a they are misled about the place of the sport in the world to start off with. And if you are misled about that, then a lot of other suppositions are never quite going to ring true either. The other thing that came through in the book too is the role of state federations, which of course is, is an ongoing issue, and the rivalry between them and the relationships between them. What did you find the most fascinating about all of that? Well, I think the, one of the most fascinating but also one of the most ruinous things was that when it came to selecting national teams, they were pretty much selected on the idea that somehow you give everybody a go in every state, which means that you don't necessarily pick the best team in Australia. I mean, for instance, if the best, and, and this was the case during the period I've studied, generally speaking, the best players were in Queensland and New South Wales and maybe a little bit in Victoria. But, you know, some of the people from other states also had to get a run. So there's always this idea that you would sort of spread the selection around. We've sort of got past that, I think, in our national teams, but nonetheless, it is sort of still a, an issue within the game that the state federations are putting aside New South Wales now because it's so big and, and so wealthy mm. because of the gift they got from Charlie Valentine. Yeah. But the other state federations do still have that degree of rivalry, don't they? Oh, well, I understand that they do, but at the same time, I mean, there seems to be a push now from people to say, look, let's just dissolve the federations, but we are a physically a very large country. I'm, I'm actually not sure if you dissolve them what you need to put in their place to have things work better. My view on that is you don't dissolve state operational responsibility. You're still going to have operations in the states. I think the real issue there is whether we need 10 CEOs, 10 boards, 10 layers of administration. And, you know, if you go back and read your book, that sort of becomes clear in that as well, even though in parts of the book, clearly because it starts at 1859, the federation wasn't a federation then, but that theme comes through very strongly. Talking of 1859, how did you discover that? I mean, I know a lot of historians, and you, you don't count yourself as an historian per se, but an archivist and a researcher. Some of them get a little bit precious <laughs> about when the first game was and where the first game was. You've sort of traced something to 1859. Tell us about that. Well, there, there was a game played in, ostensibly played in Tasmania in 1859, but you know, one can only go on what has been written about the game in, when we go back years. So if something is not hasn't been chronicled in a newspaper, we have no idea what happened. To be honest, when we go chasing this first game ever played issue, we're never really going to come up with a definitive answer really because all games would have to be chronicled and, of course, they weren't, just like they're not now. So one can only sort of um, sift among what's been provided to you. So it's always going to be a bit of a movable feast, to be honest. But in 1859, there was a suggestion that two teams of 11 players play a football match in Tasmania, and somebody was going to put up a quite considerable sum. I'm sorry, I just haven't got the book at hand now. But in, in terms of the day, it was quite a considerable sum, probably something like $500 now to the winners or something. You know, not, not world-shattering, but, but not, not like $5. Ten pounds it was at the time. The only issue was I couldn't find out if that match had been played. However... It seems like people were very serious about that match being played. And because it was 11-a-side game, I assume, and I am to a certain degree assuming, that it is more likely than not to have been soccer football. Because you make the point further on, too, in the book that at that time rugby was played by 20 players yeah. and Australian rules wasn't played in Tasmania till 
or five years later, 1864 or something like that. Yeah. I'm not hanging my hat definitively on that. I'm, I'm just bringing that date up as to, as to say to people, hey, I believe the game was played far earlier than we last knew and that, who knows, someday some, some might unearth another publication which maybe is an earlier date or, or gives far more detail. I have to be honest and say I, I, I don't think this kind of obsession that some of us have, and maybe I have it as well, of somehow trying to find the first game is it's not necessarily a fruitful thing to be involved in. It, it kind of ends up being almost a bit of a contest among people. And I'm, I'm not sure that uh, although it's relevant, although it's interesting, perhaps in a way it's been given a prominence beyond what it deserves. In some respect. What are some of the other interesting things that you found out while researching? We've mentioned about the media and its relationship with the game and the state federations and their relationship with one another. But what are some of the other interesting things you've learned? Well, I think one of the things is that football in Australia is an unfortunate situation where no matter how they sort of display their history, other forces within Australia discount that. For instance, if we were to say that the game had its origins in England, well, that somehow becomes a negative. It becomes a pommy game, whereas rugby is no less pommy, but somehow rugby is accepted, you know. And then, of course, the AFL people, for instance, say, oh, our game's Indigenous and it's Australian. On the other hand, if we say it's a world game, it then becomes, oh, well, that's a game that's played by, you know, all sorts of other people. And now people use pejorative terms. We know what the terms are. So we can't win. No matter how our description goes, there's, there's always been these... Uh, exterior forces in Australia, they find a reason to criticise the code because of it. I find that really interesting. It's, and it's been going on all the time. You know, it's never been Australian or it's never been English enough or it's never been, or if, it, if it's a world game, which it is, somehow that's not even something that's admirable, you know. <laughs> no, that's true. And, and it's interesting, you know, in terms of the Indigenous game, one of the things that John Maynard says, and he says this in his book, The Aboriginal Soccer Tribe, which, we, as you know, was also published in the second edition last year. But he makes the point, too, that you know, Indigenous Australians or Aboriginal Australians have been playing football since the 19th century also. And so to say that the, another code is the Indigenous code is also not accurate. So the, the, all of those books go very beautifully together if you read them in, in consecutively. Can reading about history of football in Australia be any guide to planning for now and planning for the times now or for into the future? Yes, it can be. I mean, it becomes an object lesson then, doesn't it, if you read the history? And in, in short, it's like, if I can come up with one phrase, this, this unity is death. And there have been so many breakaway leagues and things. I think New South Wales had something like four breakaways in the period I'm covering. And bear in mind, I only go to 1949. And I think we're in this coronavirus time now. And uh, however bad that is, and it's absolutely shocking, it's probably the worst thing we've all experienced in our lives. But this hopefully gives us time for reflection, a time to reboot the, for instance, reboot the A-League. In fact, I was thinking we should, when the A-League resumes, it should have a tagline, A-League rebooted, you know, with a boot, so that it gives people the understanding that the A-League is ready to go through a new process and further development, for instance. Well, I think you'd have a lot of people agreeing with you on that one because <laughs> the A-League definitely needs that. What about any other features that you think are a good guide to the future? Well, I mean, again, we've mentioned the federations and how there's been this, uh, if you like, jealousy between them. You know, there's always jealousy, say, between, I'm talking about the earlier days, between Queensland and New South Wales. New South Wales has always been, if you like, and I, I don't want to sort of say this in a bragging manner, but the kind of 
the locomotive of the game in Australia and probably always was and in a way always possibly always will be. But in the old days, and a lot of people don't realise this, Queensland was the second footballing state, not, not Victoria. Of course, in recent decades, it's definitely Victoria. But in the old days, say prior to World War II, it was definitely Queensland. So there's, A, there's always been that rivalry. B, there's always been this situation where the existence of clubs at times has been very tenuous. You know, clubs have always come and gone in Australia. They've always amalgamated, uh, dropped out. And, and, of course, a lot of their problems relate to financial fragility and this, if you like, the fragility of the fan base. When I was looking at that Sunderland documentary, what struck me was no matter how critical the fans were of their descent to the championship, you could be sure they'd always be at the ground every week. Now, in Australia, when we're talking about having a if you like a second division or whatever you would call it, we have to make sure that if we develop something like that, it has a sort of strong foundation. It has enough supporters. It has enough money. And the teams feel like a fit for purpose. Yeah, that's always been the case where there is very strong club culture. Fans will withstand the vicissitudes of how the team is going because it's the club that comes first and foremost. And that's what we haven't quite got right with the A-League as yet. There are pockets within the A-League, you know, where there's some very strong supporter bases, but it doesn't translate across all of the clubs. And the National Second Division, you know, especially some of the older, more traditional clubs, as they're known, um, still have that strong supporter base. So it'll be fascinating. Let's hope that we can open up the game somehow. You mentioned clubs, and clubs are, as we said, very important to the culture of the game. A hundred pages of the book, and I should mention the book is approximately 330 pages, but 100 pages of it is devoted to listing every club between 1859 and 1949. People who are listening to this will be fascinated to know how long did that take you to compile that list? Well, basically the entirety of me writing the book. So this 10 years. Yeah, well, I sort of alternated between writing the uh, narrative, if you like, and, and writing the list. What I found out was that actually doing the list was incredibly enjoyable to me. I mean, I, I don't mind admitting although some people don't, is that I'm a stamp collector. It was like getting an extra stamp every day when you found a new club, you know, and uh, it became addictive to me. I must admit I've been doing a bit of a list of some clubs post-49 as well, and it's still addictive to me doing that now. And I think that it, that itself is a rebuttal to people who say, look, our game is small in Australia. Our game is not developed. Our game hasn't branched out geographically throughout Australia. Well, if you look at the list, you'll see incredible work and devotion dedicated by people in the countryside. That's what surprised me. You know, so many little country teams developed. Yeah, that's what surprised me too, is how many are out in, not just in sort of larger regional areas, but in rural areas too. That's right. They may have died within two or three years, but the fact of the matter was, you know, if you think about it, you think about the dedication of X number of people who got that little club up in a country town, which, let's be honest, was probably devoted depending on where it was, more to AFL or rugby, either code. And, and these people were doing it in the 1890s, 1910s, 1920s. I mean, that's amazing. I, I, I take my hat off to these people. So the other thing too that I, and I touched upon this earlier is you've got some fantastic photographs in the book, you know, some of which or many of which have not been seen. How did you go about finding those and, and putting it all together? Some of those photographs and some of that memorabilia are actually obtained quite a long time ago probably 12 years ago when I started to write or started to research. And to be really honest, it's much harder to find that now. I mean, I tended to buy it off eBay or something, but 
I think in that era, even even 12 years ago, that sort of stuff wasn't treasured as much as it is now. There was a little bit more of it around and certainly cheaper to obtain. But a lot of people are after that sort of material now, which is, which is wonderful because it means we have a a much deeper research community. Yes, we do. And there's all sorts of groups all over Facebook and elsewhere that are they're trying to get or, or share these resources as well, which is great. Even the front cover of the book, it has a photograph from what is now Lake Burley Griffin, Acton Football Club in Canberra, and there's actually a lake there now, and it's a very rare photograph from the National Library. Peter, we're getting to towards the end, and I've been asking everyone the same question at the end. Imagine we're over social isolation and you can have people around for dinner. Mm-hmm. Which five people would you like to have around? I mentioned people like Arsene Wenger. Of course, I could have chosen a number of football people. In fact, I, I probably feel like I should have really selected an Australian. But I think Arsene Wenger was such a fascinating person. He revolutionised the English game. He came from an area of France that's the Alsace area, so he's got, he's got a mixed German-French background, which I've been there once and I find it a fascinating area. He obviously was a, a very disciplined man, man in the way he went about things. You rarely ever saw him get hugely upset. He always kept himself looking very fit. And I think he was a deep thinker in the game. I'm sure that if you were able to sit across the table from him, you could talk for hours about football. That's one. What about the other four? Another one I think I wrote about was Paul Keating. I I thought he was a very interesting prime minister. I don't want to get too political, but I I think he was a very interesting character. I actually like the fact that he's got a great interest in aesthetics, you know, the aesthetics of buildings or I think apparently like French, old French ampere clocks and things. So I think he's an interesting chap to talk to. Another one was Jen Lola Bridgedale. I say this only because she was probably my favourite female film star, but I think she would be principally interesting. Well, first of all, she's still alive. (laughs) <laughs> and she's quite elderly, but she would have mixed with a lot of the greats from world cinema and Hollywood. So that would be really interesting talking to her, not so much about her own career, but about other people she would have mixed with. And another person was the Dalai Lama. I think he is an interesting person. He's certainly got a very deep and interesting views about how to live a meaningful and, I suppose you could say, uh, content life. And he's got a lovely sort of slightly... How can I say, mischievous sense of humour. I think he'd be a very interesting man. So it's a pretty eclectic group, I think. Well, look, that's it for Football Insiders this week. If you want to catch up on your football reading, there's no better time to do so. Head to fairplaypublishing.com.au where there's not only a library of books available, including Peter's Chronicles of Soccer in Australia, but also our new Play On magazine, and there's now two editions out. In the meantime, stay safe. We'll be back next week with another Football Insiders podcast, and thank you for listening. Thank you, Benita. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.